have your Bibles, electronic devices, you can click to, turn to with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. And so we're in this series. We're walking verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of the background in, in just a few minutes. But, but this weekend, we're looking at this, the title of this message is Changed Lives. That Paul has planted the church there. People are coming to faith in Christ. And, and, and lives are changing. Marriages are changing. Relationships are changing. Families are changing. They're li- li- living distinctive lives. They're breaking from the culture, of their, 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 the culture in which they live live, and they're living cross-cultural lives as a result of that. And so what Paul would say, one of the identities of a church is, is just to change lives, just the testimonies in, in, in the church. And so, so this next week, I just want to let you know where we're headed. This next week, we're going we're gonna to look at, it's just a classic text that everybody uses for the rapture, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and maybe you have some questions about some end-time theology and what's going on. Well, Paul answers that, and he's going to answer that next weekend. And so he answered it in two ways. Many of them, they were being, their friends and family members were being persecuted for their faith. They were wondering, where are our family members? Are they in heaven? Are they in this place or whatever? Paul answers that question. And then he answers the question of the second coming of Jesus Christ and what that looks like. What an appropriate time with all the world events that are going on for us to just look, look at that in a very biblical way of the second coming. And so if you want to read ahead so that you have uh, a framework, this may be new to you, Revelation chapter 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, he speaks of it. And then we're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus talked about it and said, these are the signs, these are the birth pains, these are the things you're going to see. And so next week, we're looking at a place of hope. And to be honest with you, I don't know how many weeks that's going to take us, but we're going to sit in that text and try to make some sense and give everybody hope and encouragement of, of the future. But this week, we're looking at this issue of, 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 a, of a changed life and, and what, it means to, what it means to have a changed life. And, and part of that is having a correct view, a full view of who God is. And so last week, if you were with us, you know that I told a, a story about my dad and I spoke a lot about my dad and how at, when I came into the Christian life, I had a habit of projecting my earthly dad onto a heavenly father, that well, my heavenly father must be like that. And so I've talked about that, that my dad, I mean, my dad was a good dad. He was involved in my life. He wanted the best for me, and so he always kept pushing me to be better and to improve. And as a result of that, I kind of grew up thinking I'll never get my dad's approval. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm not good enough. And, and I projected that onto my, earthly, onto my heavenly father. And so what happened to me, something unlocked in me when I realized the difference between my earthly dad and my heavenly father, that no matter how perfect or great your earthly father is, he's still an imperfect model of a perfect father in heaven. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, just to remind us of an earthly dad. It's kind of surprised me the number of conversations I've had with you, the number of you that when I talked about that, it unlocked something in you. To where you realized you may have had a, not a full view of God, or you may have had an improper view of God that you grew up with, or an absentee dad, or an abusive dad, or a distant dad, or, or whatever. And all of a sudden, you projected that, and so it was hard for you to see the goodness of the Lord. It was hard for you uh, to see that God was loving in, in some of those other things. And so, so here, here, here's, here's what I've learned, that basically there's, after 
all these conversations, emails and phone calls and in between services and, and stopping people stopping me in restaurants or wherever, and we're just having these conversations. And so, so here's what I've learned, that there's basically, I think, I think there's two ways we can go in this issue of our view of God. One is we can see God all the way on this other side, that God's just a, he's a loving God, he's a forgiving God, he's a gracious God, um, he's an accepting God, but you know what? He doesn't care what I do. He's not a God of discipline. He's not a God of justice. I mean, he's kind of a loving father, but he never will correct me. He doesn't discipline me. God doesn't care what I do with my body. God doesn't care with what I do with my time. God doesn't care what I do with my relationships. He's just this loving, good father in heaven, distant, no, no discipline. Or some of us, like me, and I'll talk about that, go all the way to the other side and say, you know what? God's a God of justice. And God's, God disciplines and God corrects and, and God lets you know when you mess up and, 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 and there's deep consequences. And so if you're not careful, you go, you go to one side or the other. But a full view of God is to be able to see both, to be able to see God is loving and God is gracious, God is forgiving, but he also disciplines, he also corrects because he, he wants the best for us. One of the things, and I'll just tell this story real quickly, we're going to move on, but one of the things that formed deeply etched in my mind as a kid about this issue was this. When I was in the fourth grade, and, and, and it was crazy, but, but one morning I woke up, it was a Saturday morning, and I decided I want to shoot my sister in the head with a dart gun. And, uh, and so it, it's like an old school dart gun, not, not, like, not like the ones now that are deadly with the metal tips. It was the old school, the worn out, you know, you know spring and plastic dart with the, like the plunger suction cup. You could lick it and shoot a window and it'd stick, that kind, right? And so my sister was in her room. I, was, I got in the bathroom hallway, and I yelled her name. And so I ambushed her. She was coming down the hall. I stepped out. I shot her, and it, and it was awesome. It stuck in her, I mean, it literally stuck in her forehead. <laughs> Unfortunately, my dad was stepping out of his bedroom, and he witnessed the whole thing. And my sister was way too dramatic over the whole thing. And so she's screaming, and she looks up at my dad with his dart stuck in her forehead. And my, dar my dad literally lost his mind. And he pushed my sister out of the way. I could literally hear his footsteps coming down the hallway. He slapped me. He knocked me into the bathroom. He followed me into the bathroom and had a conversation. You know one of those conversations, I brought you into the world, I'll take you out of the world? You ever do this again? And see, my dad, my dad's dad died when he was six years old. He was raised by a single mom, and he, he had witnessed his mom being abused. And my dad had a high sense of justice. He could not, if, I mean, I, I grew up with a high, high, high value of women, high, high respect of women. And my dad created something in me to where I saw God when, when, when I came into the Christian life that when I messed up, when I sinned, it was like I could hear the footprints of God coming down the hallway for consequences or, or discipline or whatever. And I had to form a complete view of God. And you have to form a complete view of God. That's why that, that song that we just sang, and it says, the goodness of the Lord is running after me. Aren't you glad it's the goodness of the Lord that's running after you and not the judgment of God that's running after you? It's his goodness. And the reason that he disciplines and the reason he, he corrects is because of his goodness. Because he wants the best for his children. Now listen, we come to a, a, a group of scriptures in the text where Paul begins talking to this local church. He starts talking about the issue of sex. And he talks about the issue of sex and marriage. And it was, it was counterculture of their day. And, and so that's, that's one of the reasons here 
that, that I preach through books of the Bible, and I go verse by verse because it forces us to talk about everything. It forces us to talk about the whole counsel of the Word of God. It does, left to our own, we'll just talk about the things we love. We'll talk about the easy stuff. And so Paul comes to this church, and he begins talking about this issue of sexual immorality, sex inside of marriage. And, and so there's a lot of people that will tell you, right, that, that a preacher can talk about anything, but two things a preacher should never talk about is what? Money and sex. And God doesn't care what we do with our bodies, and God doesn't care with what we do with our money. And so as a result of that, preacher, you should not talk about money, and you should not talk about sex. But here's the interesting thing. When you look at the statistics of divorce, do you realize the top two reasons for divorce, the top two reasons for mar marital problems in marriage are those two things. Money, what are we going to do with our money? Whose is it? How are we going to allocate it? How are we going to spend it? Or what are we going to do with our body? And how are we going to handle this issue of sex? And so maybe, just maybe, pastors should start talking more about this issue of money and more about this issue of sex because we need to know what the Scripture says. And so Paul comes to, to Thessalonica, and see, they, they were immoral. I mean, a lot of times you hear people talk, and they, and, and they act like we're the most immoral culture to ever be, and, and it's just absolutely not true. And so Paul goes to Thessalonica, he plants his church. He starts reaching people. And, and then all of a sudden, he starts talking about sex within marriage and what is marriage. And see, let me, let me just tell you, in, in their culture, in, in their culture um, marriage, was, marriage was arranged. So when a, when, a, when a young girl or a teenager, boy or girl, uh, when they became a teenager, mom and dad would arrange a marriage for them and they'd pick out their spouse and it wasn't because they were in love and it wasn't because there was romance or they dated or anything. And it was, it was an arranged marriage. Mom and dad put them together. And so marriage in their time, in the culture in which they're talking, marriage was arranged. It was a vocation, not a relationship. The wife was just there. Sex within sight of marriage was for procreation, for having children only, not recreation or intimacy or anything like that. And so, they, and so as a result of that, it was totally permissible, totally acceptable for the man to find sex, recreational sex, outside of marriage. In fact, is when you go to Israel, I can take you to Beth Shen. It's one of the most fascinating places that I, that I go, and it's it, the, the Roman. It's a it's a decapolis. It's a Greco-Roman culture, and I mean the ruins are almost all intact. And I can take you to the city. I can take you to like the bathhouses that the men would would uh, would would visit and frequent, depending on what they wanted. I can take you to the homes, and you can see the homes of their mistresses and some of those other things. Pornography was a part of their culture. Pornography is a part of our culture, right? The only thing is we don't have to go like to downtown. Uh, we can get it on our phones and we can get it on our computers and we have a lot of access to it. And so when you look at this, you realize that Paul comes in and says, hey, I know this is acceptable in the culture, but I need you to know and I need you to understand marriage, the intimacy in marriage is it a man and a woman for life. And intimacy is in the marriage. And any sex outside of that destroys the relationship and hurts the relationship. Let me just tell you, as a pastor, I've, seen the, I, I've witnessed personally the damage. Just the damage, the guilt and the shame and the damage. And some couples are able to put, put the marriage back together and some aren't. And, and sometimes it does irreparable damage. And so, so I just want you to hear me this morning. I don't want you to feel any guilt. If you've fallen in this area, I don't want you to have any guilt. I don't want you to 
to, to receive any guilt. Because when you look at the text, you look at the tenses and the things that Paul says, this is a word of encouragement. This is a word of encouragement. And so God, when you look at the wholeness and the character of God, God's word is both preventive and redemptive. It's preventive, said do not do this. And if you do this, these are going to be the consequences. But after the sin takes place, then it's very redemptive and it's very restoring. So I want to give you three things this morning. And I, I pray, I pray, I pray. That it, that it speaks to you this morning and encourages you and deepens you. So first thing is this, it's just, just the plan. It's just the plan. And we start reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instructions from us on how you should live and please God. So now he's talking about pleasing God. As you are doing. So here's a word of encouragement. Change lives. You, you're living countercultural lives. You're understanding intimacy is in marriage. You're understanding it's a relationship. It's, it's, it's the mystery, what Paul said in Ephesians. It's the mystery of, 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 the, of, of church and the Christ. And, and so he goes, oh, it says, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That you keep away from sexual immorality. So that word sanctification, it's a word that we don't use a lot today. But it just means to be, when you're a Christian, you're set apart for a purpose. You're set apart for a holy purpose. But sanctification also means the ongoing work of Christ in your life, whether it's through his word, uh, whether it's the reading of his word, the Holy Spirit, to where sanctification is becoming more and more like Christ. It was maturing in him. It's growing in him. And so um, so 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 says, says then that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So in, in their culture, in our culture, they kind of had this philosophy that it feels good, do it. God doesn't care what you do with your body. The culture kind of encourages you, but, it's, it, but it's, it's just up to you. But I'm just telling you, as a pastor, I'm just telling you, as a pastor, I've had people in my office, and I've talked with people and tried to help put marriages back together, and it just does damage to, to, to the relationship. And then verse 3, he says, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. And, I, and so I tell people all the time in premarital counseling and other situations that the, the most difficult thing to rebuild in marriage when it is broken is trust. It's just, it's, it's hard work. It's just, it's just hard work. It, it, and, and, and so then Paul, look, look at this. He says, consequently, verse 8, consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you the whole, his Holy Spirit. So there's two things really important in that text. Paul's letting them know, hey, this doesn't come from me. This comes from God. I mean, this carries a little bit of extra weight. He's just letting them know, guess what? This, this comes directly from God. This isn't from me. This is from God. And the second thing he says, who gives you the Holy Spirit? He's helping us to understand that, guess what? The only way, the only way that you can control your body and not feed your desires is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that once you become a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit that comes into your life to empower, to encourage, and to help you uh, walk uh, a life of holiness. So first thing you have is the plan, but the second thing you have is the problem. And I've already read the problem to you, and maybe you didn't recognize it, but it's this. Look, well, let's just read it. First Thessalonians 4, 4 says that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So there's the problem. You have to control your body. 
Nobody else can control your body. Nobody else can make that decision for you. You're the only one through the power of the Holy Spirit. What he says, you're the only one that can, can do that. And the way we do that, and we're going to look at this later in the text, but the way that we do that is through the spiritual disciplines. And a lot of the spiritual disciplines, we've like given up on contemporary Christianity. And we, and we don't really talk about them anymore. But there's prayer, and there's the word, and there's journaling, there's silence, there's solitude, there's there, there's fasting and and and, uh, and 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 service and 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 sacrifice and and so it's through those it's through those disciplines it's through those spiritual disciplines that we learn to to control our body but but he also says but he gives you the Holy Spirit and so so you may ask the question you may look at the question well how do you know when someone's walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit how do you know when someone is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there's, there's some spiritual uh, uh, strains and some, some churches and some pastors will teach you. Well, the way that you know that is you speak in like an uh, unknown language. You speak in tongues. It's, you know, there's prophecy. There's prophetic words. There's healings. There's miracles. And, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the way you and I know that we're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is coming out in us. I mean, I mean, it's just visible. So here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. The only, listen, the only way we can control our body. The only way we can deny some of those temptations or some of those desires is through the Holy Spirit. This issue of self-control is critical. You talk to anybody that's successful... You talk about anybody that's had a has a successful marriage, successful relationships, successful in business, successful in their career, successful as an entrepreneur, successful as a sports in, in some area of sports. You know what they all go to? They all go back to self-control. They were able to deny themselves some 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 things at that time so that they could obtain something they wanted later. Self-control to study, self-control to work out, self-control to go to school, self-control to say no to some things so that they could have greater things later that they wanted. You can, you can look at biography after biography of people, of successful people, and they will talk about this issue of discipline in their life. And they'll talk about, and so discipline, our self-control is just so important. And so, so Paul does what every good communicator does. He starts telling stories. He starts telling stories that people could connect to. And Paul always, I mean, traditionally, when you look at Paul, and he's a pattern for me, when you look at Paul's preaching, he always told stories about sports. And so now you know it's totally biblical. <laughs> when I use illustrations about the Dallas Cowboys or the Broncos or sports, because or, that's, that's the model I have. That's what... That's, so I'm, I'm, I'm good with using sports analogies, except for talking about Tom Brady. I'm tired of hearing about Tom Brady, right? I think we all are, right? I thought when he retired, that'd be the end of it. It seems like we hear, anyway, now I'm making him an illustration. I said I would not do that. And so Paul, Paul would say, he starts talking about a sports analogy, running a race, and Paul would give the analogy and say, hey, you know what? When people run a race... The difference between second place and third place, fourth place, fifth place, fifth place, sixth place, or sixth place all the way to 100th place, honestly, not that much difference. Not a huge difference. Fact is, we don't even talk about them. But he'd say, but the difference between number one and number two, huge. 
right? I mean, this last football season, do we remember who came in third place, fourth place, fifth place, or 32nd? No, but we remember who came in first and second, right? And there's a huge difference between first and second. Just ask the Chiefs. I mean, there's a huge difference. I know. I thought you guys would like that, you Bronco fans. But there's a huge difference. And so Paul says, hey, guess what? Nobody runs the race to come in last. Nobody runs the race to even come in second. I mean, and so what Paul's saying, even in marriage, and this is relating to marriage, if you want to have the marriage that you dreamed of, then there may be some things you're going to have to not deny yourself of. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all, all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They did it, do it to what? To receive a perishable crown. So he's talking about an earthly race. But we do it to receive an imperishable crown. And, and, and so Paul has in mind of this Christian that runs the race. And this Christian that their life begins to change and they begin to mature. Verse 26 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, so now he's talking like a pastor. And he, he becomes, this is very personal. It's very personal what Paul says. He said, I do not run, run like the one who runs aimlessly, are boxed like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body, self-control, and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's not talking about being disqualified for heaven. He's not talking about being disqualified as being a child of God. He's not, you know what he's talking about? Disqualified for being in ministry. That if he fell in that area, aren't we tired of seeing religious leaders stand up and lose their ministry, confess an affair, confess an immoral relationship, because the damage that is done to a congregation is irreparable. To where, I mean, there may be people that never return to church ever again, that it affects so many lives. Aren't we tired of the politician standing up with a weeping wife by his side and confessing that? And this is what Paul is talking about. I, I will never forget. It was like, it was eight years ago. I had a friend in Texas at a really large church, and he, he was an executive pastor, was not the senior pastor. And he was older than me. And, uh, I mean, we, do, we, we had a relationship. And fact is, he was going to come here and preach. And so we scheduled him to preach because he just meant a lot to me in my life. And we scheduled him to come and preach. And Karen and I had done a ministry trip, uh, in, and we were flying back from a global leadership summit I, on a Friday, and this man was going to come and preach on Saturday and, and Sunday. And so as we landed layover in, in, in Arizona, uh, as I got off the plane, my phone lit up, and I had a voicemail from his senior pastor. And it, it was like, oh, this is serious. It was like one of those voicemails that you, hey, this is not going to be a fun conversation. And so as soon as, you know, we got off the plane and, and I got a smash burger, um, I, I said, okay, I'll call him back. And so I called him back. And have you ever had a conversation you feel like all the blood is like you're in shock and the blood is running out of your face? And he said, hey, Charlie, I, man, I just hate to tell you this. David's not going to be able to make it. And I said, what happened? He said, I don't know if you're aware of this. It's a pretty big deal here in Texas. I think it made national news. But he says there was this website called Dolly Madison. And Dolly Madison had this philosophy of how to keep marriages together in a sexless marriage. And so you could go on, you could pay a fee. 
um, and they would pair you up with someone else in a sexless marriage and that they would give you alibis and they would help you, help you to have a successful affair so your spouse doesn't find out. And so somebody got mad about that and they hacked in, they got the list, they published the list. And there were politicians on the list, there were religious leaders on the list, there were, there were judges on the list. And so I asked one of our guys, hey, would you mind pulling up the list and just making sure we're clean? He was on the list. He was the last guy on my staff that I ever would have thought would have been on the list. So he's disqualified. And we're going to continue his salary. We're going to get him in counseling. We're going we're to do everything we can. And so over the last eight years, this man has been trying to put his marriage back together. I think of that verse that Paul said, be careful if you think you stand firm, lest you fall. And where you put guardrails in your life, Paul begins talking about just this issue, that it, sanctification and walking with him, that we should get rid of everything that entangles us so that we can run the race that he has for us. And so if you've ever, you know, if you watch football back in the 70s, you know that, that football players wore real baggy jerseys and it was easy for them to be entangled. It was easy for them to be uh, tackled. And then later on, they, they got tearaway jerseys. Remember that? Earl, Wag, uh, Earl Wagner, that's a friend of mine, Earl Campbell. <laughs> He's a professor. And so Earl Campbell would go through four or five jerseys in a game, right? Because it would tear away. And, 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 and then now what do we have? We have these jerseys that are slick and form-fitting. Why? So they're not easily entangled trying to reach the goal that they have. And so this is what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the way that we have self-control is getting rid of things, getting rid of things, putting guardrails, protection in our life so that nothing entangles us as we run the race. The third and the last thing is, is this, is just the prescription. So Paul is, is a good preacher. He gave the plan. He gave the problem. He says, hey, here's the plan that God has for us. Here's the problem, self-control. And then here's, here's the prescription. And so he, he helps us understand how to develop self-control. Here's the interesting thing for me, and I mean, this was a huge aha moment for me in my study, is you find that self-control is in between knowledge and endurance. Now we know why, why maybe Paul prayed those things for this church. Watch this. 2 Peter uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Here, here, here's what Simon Peter writes. He said, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance. So where do we find self-control? In between knowledge and endurance. That's important. Endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, with love. So now all of a sudden you realize self-control is, is, is like setting in the middle of knowledge and endurance. Knowledge of the, of the Word of God. Knowledge of God's will. God's will for my life. God's will for, for plan for marriage. God's will for, uh, for, for, uh, for relationships. God's will for my life. And then in endurance, that, that we grow in sanctification when we endure difficult, hard situations, and we grow in that. Knowledge of the Word and knowledge of prayer and knowledge of understanding what God wants for us. When you look at this, self-control is closely related to, immaturity, uh, to, to maturity, right? I mean, when you're around young people, especially children, you realize that they have very little self-control. 
And so part of maturity is when you and I grow in this area of self-control, and self-control is, is related to maturity. You ask older quarterbacks, right? And like Roger Staubach, uh, you know, did an interview and said, you know what, as an older quarterback, he was a much better quarterback because of self-control, because when you throw a pass, three things can happen, and two of them are not good. And so he said, you need self-control. And when he was younger, he didn't, he didn't have self-control, and he threw more interceptions. And so you realize it's important. So here's what Titus 1, chapter 7 says. He said, an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for, for money, a not hosp- uh, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy. And he used that word again, in self-control. Then in chapter 2 in Titus chapter, uh, verse 1, he says, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled until where they come to the place and they've developed in that, life, in that worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. And so what Paul is trying to help us to understand is that, is that this issue of self-control is part of spiritual maturity. It is developed over time in life. And the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I believe it is, says that when temptation comes, God always gives a way out. God always gives a way out. I, I don't know why it is, but, but in the season of COVID and coming out of COVID, I've always been fascinated by the airline stories of people wearing masks and stewardess and everything. And so they were interviewing a group of stewardess, and this one stewardess told a little bit of a different story. And she says, oh, I was on a flight, and people were drinking way too much. And, and so I had a man in the back of the plane, and he started hitting on me, and he started flirting with me. Um, and he, he wanted me, you know, to, to, uh, to, to spend the night with him. And, and so, I mean, it was, it was, he was obnoxious. But he said, I also had a man at the front of the plane that was also flirting with me and also hitting on me. And finally, the man in the front of the plane handed me a note and said, here's the address to my apartment. Why don't you join me tonight? And so she said, you know what I did? I took that note to the back of the plane. I handed it to the man in the back of the plane and said, don't be late. She said, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to show up and just see what happened. I just wanted, she said, I wanted to see what happened. And so God, listen, God always, listen, when temptation comes, I promise you, God always gives a way out. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 about brotherly love. You don't need to write to me. Uh, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Can I just tell you this? How we handle ourselves in marriage is an act of love. A lack of love for our spouse or somebody else's spouse. It's just an act of love. And so we have to remember, I'm just telling you, we have to remember the blessing is at home. That's what, that's what Scripture says. The blessing is at home. So what I've learned as a pastor, when, when a marriage is at risk, when a marriage is at risk of an affair, it's when all of a sudden the marriage turns more to a vocation. The marriage turns more to a job. It's no longer a relationship. It's just, it's just a vocation. I mean, we are just like roommates. We're just trying to raise some kids. We're just trying to get through life. We're just trying to figure things out. We, just, we happen to be in the same home. And so as a result of that, all of our talk is either about the kids or about work or about the economy, about world affairs, or about struggles, about problems, or anything like that. But, but, but we, don't, we don't talk about it. So it's kind of like Greco-Roman culture to where all of a sudden marriage is no longer intimacy and marriage 
is no longer a relationship, and marriage is just a, a vocation. I mean, we're just going to suck it up, and we're going to gut through it. And then, you know what happens? You meet someone, and you, you can look at the steps, and I've seen these steps as a pastor, and just watch these steps, that something happens at home that causes you to, to like, lean away from your spouse. It can be conflict in the home. It can be a difficult season. It can be an illness. It can be a challenge. It can be busy schedules. It can be an illness. It can be some difficult things. And something causes you to push away from your spouse, and then you notice someone, whether it's at the office or in the community or in the neighborhood, at church or wherever, and you have some common interest and you have some, some common humor and, and they make you laugh and you make them laugh and, and you just feel different when you're around them. And, and, and so they, you know, some people say they, they just complete something in you. And, and so then all of a sudden, one, one of the individuals will start trying to see the other one, you know, like, like making sure they walk past their office and, and visit with them, making sure when I, when I see them, I'm, I'm going to be careful how I dress. And, or you go to the same coffee shop, or you go to the same, you just try to meet them. And then that moves to where it's intentional meetings by both people. And then there becomes like playful teasing and playful touching. And, and maybe at that point, people are warning you, a spouse is warning you, are you sure what's going on? Are friends warning you? And then if all of those things are ignored, then all of a sudden it becomes very intentional and it moves pretty quickly. And that's why Solomon in Proverbs, that's why Solomon in Proverbs says this, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, he's talking about marriage, and he says, drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets and streams in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure, listen, take pleasure in the wife of your youth, not a younger wife. Not a younger woman. And you may say, well, my wife's not young anymore. Well, guess what? Neither are you, bucko. Right? <laughs> right? And you come to this place to realize, listen, this, this, this is just for free. I, I, didn't, I didn't share this last night, and then we'll close. I promise. We'll close. Revelation chapter 2. The church had fallen out of love with the church. And maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you're in that situation, you just fallen out of love. You just fallen out of love, and it's vocation. And, and chapter 2, uh, verse 4, here, here's what he says. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And maybe you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And then he gives a prescription. He said, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. And you know what? Maybe you need to remember how far you've fallen. What was it like when you dated? What was it like when you were first married? What did you do? What did you talk about? How did you hang out? And he says, would you just remember that, repent? Start doing that again? And you know what? He, it's a promise. He says, your love, the love that you had for each other will return. Here's what he, here's what he says in, in 1 Thessalonians one, two, he says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. Maybe, just maybe, you need to find something to thank your spouse for. And start praying for them. God, I thank you for them because God, help, just help me to 
not lean away, but lean in. Help me to start doing the things we did at first so that our love will return. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?